Welcome back. My name is Andy, and uh, you're hopefully once again listening to the Poor Pearl's Almanac. Hopefully as in you're speaking into the void with no audience. Hopefully as in this isn't their first episode. Although, to be honest, this is going to be one of my favorites. It's a doozy. Yes, and it will be boozy. That is correct. Working on it right now as we speak. Uh, This whole series got me wanting to try some persimmon hooch, though. Oh my god, that would be amazing. Persimmon mulberry hooch. We can do it. We have the technology. Andy, if you make that, I might actually come back for New England just for a little visit. A little taste. Dude, speaking of mulberries, though, you know where I found a mulberry tree, like, fairly recently? Is this somewhere I'm going to know or be familiar with? Yes. Yes. Um... You remember the mini golf course near our house, like down the street? Yeah, airport. Yeah. There's mulberry trees in there. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I started crunching some of those leaves. I know. I was thinking of you while I was eating the berries. I was like, Elliot could eat the leaves. I could have the berries. Like, it's a win-win. I could have had a snack while I was breaking bottles behind the old Rojacks. I think some of them were still there, to be honest. There's a lot of glass on the ground, like a lot of glass. Not really some place to take kids, as I found out. I put most of it there, pretty sure. Yeah, so... It's such a funny thing to say about a place. There's a lot of glass <laughs> on the ground. A lot of glass. All right, so to this point in this miniseries, we've outlined a few figures that led to the permanent agriculture movement from outside of the government, right? But as we noted, folks like J. Russell Smith weren't as far outside of the movement as he might have appeared. And the overlap of these figures and those in government was actually really big, as we're going to see. In a strange confluence of events, the United States almost accidentally rewrote agricultural history in a good way about 100 years ago. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, So we're going to talk about corn again? No, not directly, at least. But corn is a big piece of why it fell apart. We'll get there, I promise. But uh, before we do, we got to back up a bit. Oh, God, not to the Ice Age. I can't deal with that goddamn squirrel. No, this is a little easy-peasy hop, skip, and jump to the Civil War and the Reconstruction South. F.H. King time. Yeah, that was a great time to be alive for uh, no one. Carpetbaggers had a good time. Those weren't really people, though. They were like pseudo-British like wannabes. No, at least the carpetbaggers tried to improve things sometimes. The best intentions. Mm. Road paved to to wherever, I don't know. So, it took like 2,000 years for people to stop hating on the Romans. So, oh wait, you didn't do your line. Fine. All right, now following the Civil War, agriculture had fallen apart for a number of reasons. Not only had the labor markets completely changed because, you know, slavery was banned. But because of the war, there was an explosion of mortgage debt, which paired with excess production as well as high shipping rates charged by railroads, all of which decimated farmers. Excess production, though, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that because everyone was fighting a war, a lot of soils rested for a number of years. Now, paired with the fact that a bunch of people also died, so there were less people that needed to be fed, as well as the fact that all of this was happening... A bunch of folks who had been enslaved trying to work their way out of where they were living entered this newer form of slavery that had sprung up, which was sharecropping. So all of the disarray of agriculture in the South drove the creation of the Patrons of Husbandry, which was formed in 1867, and it's also known historically as the Grange. 
While initially for educational and social purposes, they quickly shifted to pursue cooperative business arrangements by the 1870s. The patrons of husbandry sounds like the farmer version of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but like milking cows are like a, a white, a pale cow. I don't know. Or, or it sounds like the early days of um, only farmers or um, wait, what was it? The uh, farmers only farmers only dot com. There you go. Nice. Yeah, uh, the Grangers were kind of like a tea party thing, like in the sense that they erupted to like release a lot of pent up frustration of the farmers at the time, but they really weren't very well organized. So they didn't really make any meaningful change. Within like a decade, the organization had already started to fade, but was followed by like a much more political and militant Farmers Alliance. Okay, so Farmers Alliance also sounds like an insurance company. Them and State Farm are just natural enemies. Watch the Wild Farmers Alliance in its natural habitat. Oh, what's this? The State Farm has moved next door? <laughs> Shall a battle erupt? The beats have been seeded. I don't know. I think I'm going to stick with planet Earth. Fine. Be like that. All right. So one thing I do want to ask. Serious question. State Farm, mm-hmm. do you feel like the guy in the commercials looks like Babe the Pig's owner? Every time I see him, that's all I can think of. And I didn't realize it was not the same dude until, like, kind of recently. I don't think I know what Babe the Pig's owner looks like. Oh, my God, Matt. I thought you were a pig farmer. Uh, not anymore. I said were. All right, you got, you got me. Are you talking... But I still don't know what he looks like. You don't. You've never seen him. Are you talking about pigs? I thought you were talking about James Cromwell. He's in fucking Star Trek. He, didn't, he doesn't do State Farm commercials. Listen, he's like... Him and Flo are the, like, Brangelina Hollywood love story for, like, people who watch TV instead of movies. They're like star-crossed lovers. Oh, my God. How can you be so wrong about so many things in one sentence? And, you know, just think about it. Like, I'm not even trying at this point. Like, can you imagine if I did? I mean, that's just standard podcaster speak. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. So let's talk about the Farmers Alliance. The real one, not the star-crossed lover. They tried to pick up where the Grange left off and continued to advocate for cooperative business models, specifically around marketing and buying at scale. Now, during the same time in 1880, specifically, farmers in Kansas organized to form the first major agrarian political party in the country known as the People's Party, based largely on the goals of the Farmers Alliance. They pushed for a number of very progressive actions, including antitrust legislation, government ownership of railroads to reduce shipping costs, a progressive income tax, and this is before taxes, income tax even existed, and direct representation within the government. And it's wild how progressive politics had once been like the backbone of rural America, and today it's like almost completely erased from those spaces. Yeah, and we're just like really scratching the surface of this subject, to be honest. Yeah, it's like the trajectory of a failing empire. Everything's on a curve. Yeah. Once it was good, but now it's not. And it's going to get worse. So their movement in their first election was moderately successful, but like many movements, they lost a lot of momentum after the party's defeat, first defeat, first big defeat, which was in the 1896 election. Now, this momentum wasn't lost because the party wasn't popular, but rather like many things, When the issue at hand is resolved, people tend to lose interest and motivation. Just ask George Floyd. For the Farmers Alliance, the biggest influence was pricing parity. 
And as the commodity prices rose faster than farm expenses for two decades when they were all, you know, reared up, the urgency behind the organization kind of like fell by the wayside because people were happy. So now pricing parity is basically the idea that pricing goes up or down based on inputs, right? So it's even more broad than that. It can mean that the price aligns with a number of other factors that might be important to sellers or buyers, including purchasing power, consistency in pricing for the same good, adjustments in relation to inflation, uh, anything else that I didn't bring up right there that could have a similar impact. Now, there's a number of reasons involved with why commodity prices had increased at this time, and we're not going to get into that. But one of the big ones was that this was one of the periods with the most immigration to the United States in our history. And this is important because that meant there were a lot more mouths to feed. And uh, most of these immigrants were going to work in the new industrial cities, which meant they weren't challenging them for jobs. They weren't taking up more farmlands. They were able to continue producing the same amount of food, feed more people. And in that process, everyone made more money because you're not competing for a small market driving down prices. We are farmers. Bum, ba dum, bum, grow all the food. <laughs> yeah. It's about time to roll a commercial. Matt, you need a break? I'll, uh, I'll never not say yes to a break. Like a true communist. <laughs> Are you thirsty? No? Do you want to be? Try bean curd. With twice the chewiness of a sponge and half the flavor of dough. What could be better? Nothing. Take your high-protein block of cardboard and make a great meal incredibly mediocre. Say it with me now. Herd your thirst with curd. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? Because it's bean curd. Learn more about the power of bean curd at poorproles.com. Stay thirsty, friends. Welcome back, everyone, and good news. We're jumping into World War I. Oh, God. Why is this good news? I don't have my trench knife. And didn't like eight and a half million people die because some random dude got shot? His name was France and like, Maybe two sides cared and everybody else just jumped in on it. I'm sorry, Elliot. Do you not care about Archduke Franz Ferdinand Karl Ludwig Joseph Maria of Austria? I mean, that is a beautiful thing to just roll off the tongue, Matt. Still thought it was a band. (laughs) That would be the best band name ever. (laughs) Every time somebody says it first, yeah, I think the band and then I think the Archduke, you know? Yeah, but no, his full name needs to be a band. Yeah. It's like a, that's basically a Mars Volta title. Right. Hello, we are AFFCLJM. A. A. Of A. Of A. <laughs> um, and uh, to back up, like, to be fair, most major historical events started for some stupid fucking reason, right? World War II, which we're going to talk about at some point in this mini series, was basically because Woodrow Wilson got the Spanish flu and wasn't able to force his position of peace at the Treaty of Versailles, which is basically what tanked Germany's economy and uh, was the breeding environment that led Hitler rise. Thanks, Spain. Your friggin' flu. (laughs) Spain and their flus, right? (laughs) Fuck them. Now, the Spanish flu actually 
fun fact, was only called that because of World War One, when most countries were so ravaged that they were. Is this related to tree crops? I can make it so. Uh, it's this. Uh... Welcome back, listeners, to this fun game that we uh, play on the Poor Pearls Almanac. You bring up a random fact, and Andy ties it back to uh, agricultural history. It's like six degrees of separation, but uh, nerdier somehow. I, I don't understand how the listeners find this fun, but please stick around. <laughs> please stay. <laughs> please clap. Please clap. Uh, all right, so let's talk about World War One then, all right? Great. Spain was neutral in World War I, so they reported the destruction while the rest of the world was experiencing it, but uh, refused to publicly acknowledge it because it would have been read as, like, weakness during the war. The point here really is that in Europe, almost all of the continent was in war, uh, except for Spain. Farmhands were sent to fight and crops were abandoned, pushing commodity prices up. And American farmers grew as much as they could to feed the international markets. But as the war ended, competition slowly returned. And suddenly, the massive surpluses that farmers had relied on to sell overseas saturated market demand and all those prices collapsed. Yeah, just in time for the Great Depression. Isn't that great, guys? Isn't it? This is so fun for everyone. I'm hungry. Have some soup. Just water with a couple pieces of ice in it. With a corn. A corn. Tree corn. And the paper-thin slice of Donald Duck bread. Aw, oh, I love the Donald Duck bread. What a great time to be alive. Before the Great Depression, because obviously that happened afterwards, right, uh, we see some response to this collapse, this, this big, you know, farming collapse. In 1921, three years after World War I, prices were still down about 30% from their wartime highs. And much like in the past when we saw the Grange and the Farmers Alliance spring up, new organizations sprung up across the Midwest, and that focused on decommodifying key functions of agriculture. So folks like the Nonpartisan League advocated for state-owned grain elevators, flour mills, and meatpacking plants to make the industry itself function more affordably. Unfortunately, these weren't the only folks who had learned to organize. Okay, so I'm getting flashbacks to like the Agra episode where there's going to be like a million organizations and even more acronyms because some of them overlap with like organizations within organizations. I mean, not like a an actual million. No, that that's Andy speak for literally a million. No. Literally one million. <laughs> so while these left-leaning orgs that will not be named built on farmer grievances, those who had weathered the storm in terms of farmers... They came out on top, right? And this was a really easy and great opportunity to expand and purchase failing farms cheaply, right? If everyone's going out of business and you're doing great, pennies on the dollar. So if you're one of these folks, the the collapse of agriculture was a good thing. The way a recession is good to Warren Buffett. Yeah, who gives a shit if people lost everything? You're increasing your margins. Yeah, I got those wide margins like that. I forgot what it's called. I was going to say college rule, but they're small in college rule. What's the one that you're in school? The first grader edition? Yeah, like that big piece of paper that they give you in first grade when you can't write. <laughs> when you can't write good? Yeah. Big ass yeah. margins is my joke. That's it. That's it. I like it, Elliot. It's really well flushed out. Yeah. It's beautiful. I think it's my strong suit. <laughs> you think good. 
Now, in, in 1919, these particular farmers, they formed what's called the American Farm Bureau Federation, and they were basically explicitly against basically everything the Nonpartisan League advocated for and supported projects like privately held federal land banks and expanding extension services and land-grant colleges. And I'm sure that right there perks up a lot of years. This organization and their work was the basis for a lot of what we see decades later in places like Mexico, India, Africa, and so on in the name of progress. I mean, the extension services are pretty cool and land-grant colleges seem to be cool too. To an extent they are, but the entire purpose of them was basically to make the demands of the organizations like the Nonpartisan League mostly obsolete. It was to take away their most popular positions and kind of make them more of a radical party. Now, further, if we go back in history to the origins of the extension schools, we can look back at the Morrill Act of 1860 as a, a tool to continue expansionism and to institutionalize Western agriculture on the landscape. Now, we saw a lot of this play out in recent memory in the episode we did on Ephraim Hernandez, and uh, with no doubt it was applied and used to erase indigenous knowledge, as we saw in that episode, including indigenous knowledge that had been shared with colonists. Yeah, that's um, not not good stuff. Not cool, yes. Yeah, <laughs> not cool. But uh, in some ways it is a, a cool resource today, like without that context or that history, like that history sucks but extension schools do a lot of really great work today and uh, have a, really lot of, a lot of good people working for them. To get back to the episode, though, the counterweight to that, the AFBF, the American Farm, yada, 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 was the Farm Union, who pushed for cooperative projects and also advocated for things like sales strikes to force the government to guarantee farmers their production costs plus a small profit. And uh, we talked about this briefly in the corn episode. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those callback episodes where we're going to reference episodes that we've done before, because I think this is the fifth one. It's uh, it's more like a bottle episode, only the bottle is uh, Port Pearl's Almanac space time instead of just one scene. Well, yeah, basically this 20-year period in American agriculture functionally explains why our food system is what it is today. And it was kind of like, you know, the meme of like the the heaven and the hell and the dude standing in the middle of the crossroads. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, I love memes in an audio format. Yes. It's Matt's favorite thing. It's not like heaven and hell. It's like a happy house and with like a rainbow. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good castle and an evil castle. Yeah, that. Uh, you can tell my visual memory is really good. So this was that moment in time where we had like the perennial agriculture, permanent agriculture movement, and then like conventional ag, and we had to make a decision. And all of what we're talking about in this like 20 year period explains what happened and how close we were to going the good way. And we didn't. Womp womp. Womp womp. So in 1932, all of this work by the Farm Union culminated in a formal attempted closure through a self mandated holiday by the Farms Holiday Association at the state fairgrounds in Des Moines, Iowa. Basically, what they did was try to shut down the fairgrounds during a major event to center everyone's attention on the needs of the farmers. Unsurprisingly, certain people didn't like this and it turned violent when the National Guard came in and began to beat the striking farmers. Yeah, back when strikes meant strike breakers and violence. I love the, the old wobbly stories of people getting hit in the head with pieces of wood and pipes. And, you know, they would just maim each other but not actually kill anybody. So badass. When fights were real fights. 
Well, I think they kill each other too. Yeah, there's definitely some some murders happening. It at least escalated. They didn't go straight to it. <laughs> you know, it's all about the dance, really. Like you, you got to do the dance. They had dignity and respect. I will say that. That's that's what Andy was uh, trying to uh, that on the UAW picket line. It's like it's all about the dance, guys. Come on, guys. Everyone knows that. Now, while this particular event hasn't really maintained a lot of cultural relevance today. It was the same practice and even the same people and organizations which blocked foreclosure sales by bidding pennies for homes at auction and basically threatening bank officers if they failed to accept the sales proceeds as full repayment. And like, this is something I think you see a lot on social media, right? Like an infographic meme or something of like farmers protecting a farmhouse from like, you know, the banks taking it over. I feel like there's a few that like make the rounds every few months. I know. I'm thinking of uh, the kid in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where it was like, my pa says I'm supposed to shoot anyone from the bank. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Are you from the bank? Exactly. Yeah, that that is basically a nod to this period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is like so cool that like people are just like that fucking like willing to step up in that way. Yeah, I'm not sure why we ever stopped doing that, to be honest. I mean, everybody wins except the banks, so... Fuck the banks. Yeah, it's a it's a small group of people that loses, but uh, they're powerful. Fuck them. Yeah. Now, with all this going on, uh, we've also got the Dust Bowl rearing up, right? And, like, the Dust Bowl wasn't, like, this surprise thing that just happened. Like, there, there was a buildup to it, right? It wasn't like, oh, wow, for some reason everything was fine, and then it wasn't. And while the Dust Bowl does get, like, a lot of very well-deserved attention... That wasn't the only thing going on. The The other major thing that was happening during this time was the country was also like flooding around all these rivers because of poor management by both farmers and planters that thought they could just manage the land by making it do whatever they wanted it to. Yeah, that's something that blew my mind, finding out that the rivers are flooding while the land was drying out. Really must have been like apocalypse-like conditions, and I bet everybody just loved it. Yeah, I love the... What's, what's drought without a little flooding? You know, right. Not only did it feel catastrophic, it was catastrophic. Henry Wallace, who I really wanted to do an episode on because he was he was the one that if I was going to add one more episode, we would have done him. He uh, he would go on to be the secretary of agriculture and was quoted as saying, in quote, human beings are ruining the land and bad land is ruining human beings, especially children. End quote. Yeah, it, it's just like. He is an incredible figure that was so close to being president and, again, would have fundamentally changed the way food was grown in this country. And nobody even knows about it. Yeah, I think Eddie just doesn't like doing episodes where there's already research done on it. Yeah, it wants to be the uh, obscure unknown people in agriculture history. There's a niche. There is a niche. I mean, we're here, right? But that said, I, I definitely highly recommend like diving into his story. The big biography that exists on him is like 700 pages, and we're actually going to be talking about the author in a couple weeks, um, because why would I talk about Henry Wallace when I can talk about his biographer, right? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like it's time for a little commercial break before Andy forgets uh, what this episode is actually about, and we start talking about Henry William Wallace or whatever. So Henry was actually born- Dom, and- do it. Cut quick, it in. Quick. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. 
on our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. And that's Henry Wallace's story. Oh my God, El- Elliot, wake up! He's done. He's finally done. Oh, oh, what? What? It's over. It's over. <laughs> you guys are fucking hilarious. God, just uh, four they hours got the later. abbreviated. It was a. Abri- it was like five minutes. I gave them an abbreviated story, and they did not appreciate it. Mm-hmm. No, it was boring as hell. Mm-hmm. You guys, you, like, it's not even like interesting to you that he was like basically stepbrothers with like George Washington Carver and then became like almost the president like what white dude was doing that back then dude was badass I thought George Washington Carver was a black guy he is he wasn't actually brothers he was like a part of the family though it's like, why did I even talk to you guys I don't know why do you even talk you, to us you heard none of it no it went through one ear and out the other honestly I was I was sleeping well, he was sleeping through it yeah Fine, we'll talk about the episode then. Let's let's go back to the 20s, right? The world's ecology is just fucking collapsing. Rivers are overflowing everywhere. No, we wouldn't know anything about that. No. The breadbasket was drying out. People's pets' heads were falling off. Famously. I mean, I don't know about that last part. Yes, famously. Really? Nothing for that, guys? That was a great Dumb and Dumber reference. No, it was awesome. I remember Petey. Oh, I, I missed it. I didn't get a smile out of you. All right. So basically, everyone knew things weren't going great, right? Like, everyone was like, this is fucking terrible. It was around this time that, like, fears about, like, societal collapse, not just, like, the fact that things suck, but, like, this is the end, like, capital E, end. Food systems were collapsing. Uh, and, like, that was becoming, like, pretty mainstreamed and, like, justifiably so. These are the true OG, like, American preppers. Like, this is where the mentality came from. Yeah. And this language became, like, much more pervasive in everything around food systems. Like, this this becomes really obvious in, like, the way people are writing about food. So there's this guy. His name's Walter Loudermilk, which is, like, just the best last name. Like, my, my milk is just louder than yours. So my last name is Loudermilk. It should be Louder uh, Cow. No, it's the milk that's loud, man. Okay. Like you talk about, like does it that smell weed tank? was loud. Like, well, I was gonna his say, fucking... does it? Oh, it just, <laughs> does it smell it tank like weed? His fucking milk was loud, man. Oh my god, you got that loud, um, but it's just spoiled milk, <laughs> fermented. He's just getting fucking drunk on fermented milk. Uh, to make my so... stomach turn. Stop. <laughs> it's just cottage cheese. So so our boy Loudermilk was a really famous soil scientist at this time. He was doing a lot of writing. Uh, he went to Africa and the Middle East, and uh, he described his trip as though he'd visited the, uh, what his words, not mine, graveyard of empires. Yeah, that's not dramatic at all. Not at all. 
Speaking of graveyards, I'm about to have a septic company come and pump out the graveyard. (laughs) What is that? (coughs) Your septic tank, man. That's awful, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Man, some of this stuff, yeah, you just you just can't. I didn't read this episode first. I just I'm not I'm not doing that. (laughs) Fine. I gotta say, some hit, some miss. That was a great hit. Ellie just does, doesn't want to man up for it. No, I didn't understand it first. And then it took me a minute because I was like, graveyard of meals. Oh. Yeah. Humanure. Humanure. All right. So the point is, uh, obviously, the language is really loaded by our loud milkman. It really just like gets across this point that like people understood that the shitty soils are how we think of like the deserts of North Africa and the Middle East, that the soil health was tied to our collective health. Like, it's becoming, like, very apparent, or people are starting to kind of tie these things together a little bit. Now, of course, we, we today understand it was more complicated than just soil degradation, which led to those collapses. And uh, the examples he gave included things that, like, actually helped protect soil health. So, for example, he went to to the Central America and he blamed the Mayan collapse on using all of the land for corn production, even the hillside patches, which he claims was what led to mudslides. Now, we now know this wasn't the case, but it does speak to like this really innate and important like discovery or realization of the, the fear of soil degradation and its connection to the way societies thrived or fell. It sounds like this guy was not corn-pilled. He wasn't buying it. He did not have the juice. You mean the Riz? I think the kids are saying Riz now. No, it's the the kid. I, it's got the juice. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The little TikTok kid? No. <laughs> You've never seen the corn TikTok kid? No. Oh, yeah. The, the like... From like so, nine the, months like, ago. The like song. Yeah. The, oh, he um, loves the corn? Yes. Yeah. That it's kid. got the juice. Yeah. Yes. Apparently... Apparently, Louder Milk did not have the juice. He had the milk. He didn't have the juice or the risk. Got it. Yeah, and uh, he clearly did not know about the, the corn slime. 1920s, not the corn slime time. Not slime time. What? Corn slime. Mucilage. It's got what plants crave. Nope. Ba- not not ba- ringing any bells. A bacteria that can fixate nitrogen from the, the air, uh, reducing the nitrogen draw from the soil. We can talk about this later. You said it wasn't going to be a porn episode. Yeah, Andy, we're going to have to hold you to that. Fine. We're putting slime time on the Patreon. Ugh. Oh, my God. No? You don't yeah, want slime time? You know, it does sound like a Patreon exclusive. I don't know. I feel like Nickelodeon still has that trademarked. Do you oh, think? true. Is Nickelodeon... Well, I guess oh, my Nickelodeon God. What a, what a... Wild childhood. But, yeah. I kind of forgot about Nickelodeon slime. And I think they were trying to desensitize us from actually pouring like nuclear waste on people. Yeah. I saw it first in RoboCop and they were like, you know what? That's a good idea for the kids. <laughs> it's like from one to 16 was slime time. And then like from 16 to like 30 is crime time. Right. Yep. It all checks out. And then after that, you hit your prime. prime and then time. you hit your prime time. I'm telling you, I'm hitting the, pr- I'm in the prime time. Not very prime. It's not very uh, Deion Sanders, I'll say that. Listen, you skip the part where you go to jail. Then you focus on your citrus orchards, and it becomes... My dad. 
it becomes lime time. Yes, I knew he was going to lime time. Yep. Lime time, nice. My dad, he owns this orchard. <laughs> my Fukuoka reference yeah. that I will make every time. There's no way that this episode's turning into a dumpster fire. It it only does. What do you mean? We're on track. Are we? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're. this is all related to our boy with the my loud milk. My stomach is turning. We're mixing citrus with loud milk. Yeah, how do you think the milk got loud? Not not a good time. Getting loud, boy. Uh, all right, so the our, our milky boy buddy uh, mm, also spoke about Chinese. Just call him he louder just milk. Said that I just know. Just call him louder milk. We don't Loudy need to boy. Know. I'm with Matt. <laughs> I don't know. Milky boy is now like I don't like milky boy. No, you can't. You can't call people that. Or if they're really white, then he is milky. I think louder milk gets the point across anyway. I think my wife would be offended. Okay. Uh, all right. So fine. Our friend whose name is not the non-denominational soy milk. All right. He also uh-huh. spoke about. Okay. He's better. It's. It's okay. We're just gonna let it go. It's only gonna get worse from here. Yeah. We gotta. We gotta. Move on. Pick, pick your right. battles, yes. Matt. Yeah. True. So, true. So he he spoke about Chinese agriculture as well primarily where it hadn't been yet radically changed by industrialization. Hmm. Where did he hear about Chinese agriculture? I don't know if it had to do anything with our friend F.H. King. Anyways, while there were examples of landscapes devastated by conventional tilled agriculture, in many places it had either continued to be maintained or restored and managed ethically with things like dikes, terraces, and more. Another author at the time, Paul Sears, also a soil advocate, and says in one of his books that what made Chinese stewardship successful was a, in quote, sense of belonging to a particular place on earth, end quote. Versus, I guess we're talking about like the, the placelessness of conventional agriculture in the United States. Like a, a plot of land in Indiana might be managed like no differently than Montana, just like for the corn. Exactly. The critique that blew back on the American practices was quite literally the Americanized piece of it, right? It was the idea of like arrogance and the need for indefinite growth. And uh, it's no coincidence that like a lot of this criticism of indefinite growth was also happening during like the rise of the Soviet Union. While we've seen bits of that socialist and communist and anarchist organizing in these rural spaces through these various organizations, A lot of those leftist ideals had become more mainstream over the late 19th century and early 20th century as it became clear that the illusion of the American vision of perpetual growth and excessive individualism became more and more unrealistic on a planet with finite topsoil. And unsurprisingly, the the farmers who saw the consequences immediately of the framework based on unlimited growth and production quickly understood that the systems that they were involved with were unsustainable for soil and uh, by proxy were unsustainable for humans. And there's a lot to unpack about all this because like, as I keep talking about, industrial farming didn't occur or start in a vacuum. I mean, we've talked until you were blue in the face and I'm falling asleep about corn's history. And while it is an incredibly productive plant and a cool C4 grass and all that shit, it's also a byproduct of being at the right place at the right time in the wrong soils. Kind of like Raytheon, but maybe not the soils part. Or maybe the soils part. I'm sorry. Is that that some sort of product placement? 
because I still haven't gotten paid from that last Raytheon ad we did. First off, I see the guns behind you. I know you got paid. Are, <laughs> are those are those CIA guns, Elliot? These are from work. These are from work. Yeah, work related guns. Yes, I found them at work. <laughs> I found them in the not lost or found. It's kind of an open armory policy. I don't know. I can't read. It says evidence. I thought it said exit. So I said, if I'm going to exit, I may as well take this. Might as gun. well take these guns home. Evidence, schmevidence. Right, guys? Yeah, exactly. And this will be in the court recording. Yes, I can't. I can't wait. So this is the first of a three parter I'm estimating for uh, the story of the government movement towards permanent agriculture. As you can see, we're really, at this point, framed up this idea of, like, everyone's starting to be like, oh, fuck, this can't keep going on. What are the alternatives? And we haven't quite seen the alternatives yet, but we also know at this point that those people that were working on it are out there. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get into that. I'm real excited to get there. Holy shit, I'd be... That was the longest intro ever. Bro, this, this is, is part nothing. one. This is part one. <laughs> and part now, one. We're, now we're starting part we've, one. We've done four parters, Elliot. Come on. Good Lord. I, you might not remember them, but we did do them. I remember at least half of everything that we talk about. You remembered C4 grass. I'm so proud of you. Yeah, yeah. I pick and choose. That was, that, was a sweet, that was a sweet C4 grass reference. I think you only remembered it because of dynamite. It's explosive, yes. It's plastic yes. explosives. That's the only reason. Something to relate it to. Yeah. Get it get that little kernel stuck in there. Uh so if you can't the wait for part kernel? two. Yeah, the corn kernel. The kernel, yeah. as you might call it. I, nobody calls it that. Okay. If you are just gung ho, can't wait for part two, go up on Patreon. You can also read this in a, a little bit more fluid and in-depth fashion through our substack with all the cited stuff for people that really just want to dig in deep. Are you saying uh, we're not fluid and in-depth? Some of us are. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, if you want to if you want to like actually sit down and read it and not have to listen to us meander through the stuff, go check out the substack, get the citations, not the ones from police. And uh yeah, go have go have a blast, get off the internet, go go touch a tree. Shoot up, touch grass, touch C four, C four grasses. Go, go use some C four in any form against anything that might stop you from growing. Oh my grass. God, Andy, the court recording. We can't, ha- we can't publish this. No, we totally uh, can because uh, we'll just spin it and say we're talking about grass. It's fine. Yeah, we can talk about C four and all the ways you can use as it as much as we want. Yep. See, and I also it pays to have a CIA guy in your. That's right. In your, uh, Network. And I took a bunch of stuff from the evidence room. So if anybody needs to topple their local government or whatever, like just hit me up. I got what you need. All right. I got what you want. Got what you need. None of this stuff is traceable. None of it. None of it. Just trust me on this. Yep. Trust me, just bro. Meet take me at, my word for it. Meet me at the police station. I'll hook you up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. This is fun. Thank you guys. We'll catch you in the next one. Later. Yeah.